the original guide to men's health is moving to a monthly release schedule. We will be releasing new episodes the first Wednesday of each month. We really appreciate you listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to The Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. Welcome to part two of Human Sexuality episode of the original Guide to Men's Health. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Erwin Goldstein and Sue Goldstein. Dr. Erwin Goldstein has been diagnosing and treating people with sexual dysfunction since the late 1970s. He has edited multiple books and authored more than 350 publications in the field. He is Director of Sexual Medicine at Alvarado Hospital and practices medicine at San Diego Sexual Medicine. He holds a degree in engineering from Brown University and received his medical degree from McGill University. The World Association of Sexual Health awarded the gold medal to Dr. Goldstein in 2009 in recognition of his lifelong contributions to the field. In 2012, he received the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health Award for his distinguished service in women's sexual health. In 2013, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Sexual Medicine Society in North America, and in 2014, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society for Sexual Medicine. He is happily married to his college sweetheart, Sue, and together they have three children and five grandchildren. Sue Goldstein, a Brown University graduate, is a sexuality educator and clinical research manager at San Diego Sexual Medicine. She co-authored When Sex Isn't Good to provide education and empowerment to women with sexual dysfunction. She is managing editor of a journal associate editor of two textbooks and author of multiple peer-reviewed publications. Ms. Goldstein is currently president-elect of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. She is an AA... SECT, American Association of Sexual Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, Certified Sexual Educator, and a CRPT, Certified Clinical Research Coordinator, and a 2017 recipient of the International Society of Women's Sexual Health Distinguished Service Award. Welcome, Dr. Erwin Goldstein and Sue Goldstein. Appreciate your joining us for part two of Human Sexuality. For listeners, we're going to be very specific about sex, and so I'm just giving you all warning. Thank you for joining us, and let's go ahead and jump right in. So I'd like you to both speak to sexual response, and let's start with female sexual response. You're one of the foremost researchers on human sexual response. Dr. Goldstein, why don't you go ahead and just describe a little bit about what you've studied and give us some insights into arousal time for females, orgasmic response, normal. And then we can go into a little bit of the abnormal. 
So, uh, Dr. Bellman, am I allowed to call you Rich, by the way? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I only know you as Rich. Okay. I'm going to actually pass the buck to Sue. You know, that's one of those questions that kind of can't really be answered because arousal and orgasm, as you're asking about, are really quite different for individuals. And so a lot of times what we say is, you know, are you happy with the arousal response you have? Are you happy with your orgasm? Some women are multi-orgasmic and if they only have one orgasm for them, that means there's something going on. For other women, they've never achieved orgasm. And that is a problem. If you've never had orgasm and you wish to have one, then certainly that's where you would, you know, seek sexual medicine provided for help. But there is no specific normal as to how much arousal is normal and what kind of an orgasm because there are multiple sources of orgasm internal and external what is normal and you know what a normal orgasmic response is except to say that if you are satisfied with your arousal you're satisfied with your orgasmic response that would be normal and what is one of the major complaints you see in a relationship when a female comes in about a partner and stimulation well, so one of the first questions you need to find out is if a woman is having trouble getting aroused, is her partner providing her enough foreplay before they attempt to have sex? If she's having trouble orgasming, the same thing, is there enough stimulation? Those are questions that we have to sort of parse out as part of her history. Some of that is cultural as to how much attention the partner is paying to the woman. And, you know, this is true probably more commonly when it's heterosexual sex, when it's same sex same partner, same gender sex, then typically if it's a woman stimulating a woman, she sort of has a better understanding of how much is needed. There are some funny things like uh, you're having foreplay and you're really responding and it's a guy and he goes, oh, this is working well. I'm going to try something else. And the woman's response in her brain is like, this is working well. Don't switch to something else. Keep doing the same thing. And what you do during foreplay is not necessarily intuitive within a couple. And so Really having a conversation, maybe not right at that moment, but having open communication is a really important part of a relationship because good sex requires not just good sex in the bedroom, but good communication over and above the actual act of intercourse. Discrepant desire disorder is the number one issue that I see outside of pain, where a couple would come in, the man's testosterone is six, seven, eight, nine hundred. He wants to have sex multiple times in a day, seven days a week, 30 days in a month. And she's happy having sex one or two times a week. But that for the partner is a discrepant desire disorder. It's a really interesting disorder because there's really a discussion of communication here. And if it bothers the woman and she wants to have more desire, we can help. Man may have be the one with discrepant desire, we can help him too. We have women who are way more interested in having sex than their male partner. We do have an episode on testosterone, which listeners can find. We have a vast audience and across the age spectrum. Some are still learning about sex and what you're both saying is communication about desire, arousal is the most important feature of the relationship, which is great. We understand that in females, there are some women who have low libidos that you say are high libidos. I watched a researcher once who was presenting and was talking about, she described them as low T women, moderate T women, high T women, and said that she experimented with testosterone in the appropriate dose under guidance. And 
she used it for a while. It did increase her awareness, her libido, and then she stopped it. And she said some of the sexual clues that she had while she was on it remained. I mean, she was more aware, even though she wasn't still getting testosterone. So if it's not a good fit for the couple between each of theirs desire, as you say, there are remedies on both sides. And the most important thing is for people to know that they should communicate. And if it's something that needs to be solved, there are remedies. And just for clarification, there are testosterone mills around the country of offices that advertise just testosterone. And then there's urologists and gynecologists, OBGYNs, and other people who specialize or have good knowledge of testosterone, and primary care people may. So I think something for people to understand is to start with a physician who does a lot of this and understands it. Any input you have regarding, just quickly, we don't want to spend a lot of time on testosterone, but just quickly before, who would you recommend somebody going to in that instance? Let me just make a caveat here. We've discussed women's sexual response, the individuality of it, the discrepant issue with the partner, the male partner and a female partner. The birth control pill, we have to spend two minutes on the birth control pill because it's a disaster drug that while it achieves its goal in contraception, there are better methods for contraception that have a better success rate in achieving contraception. Those are called long-acting reversible contraceptions, and those are LARCs. There are roughly 30 million women on birth control pills, each and every one of them, not, not just 80% or 60% or even 99%, each and every one of women on birth control pills has low testosterone through the concept that a protein from the liver is being increased in its synthesis called sex hormone binding globulin. The acronym is SHBG. Everyone who's on a pill will have an elevation of that. That will result in the testosterone that is synthesized by the ovary and the adrenal gland to be bound more efficiently, and they'll be less available for use by the body in the various organs. Women on birth control have low testosterone. So the reality is someone may say, I'm only interested in once a week and be on a birth control pill. And the reality is if they weren't on a birth control pill and their testosterone could be increased by being off the pill or actually taking testosterone, she may have a different norm for her. So it's not just the communication, it's the biopsychosocial context, which is I think really the message that I'd like to share you need sex therapy, you need communication, but you need somebody doing the biologic assessment. But to answer your question, Rich, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health recently published a publication on the use of testosterone in women for low desire. Erwin and I are both two of the authors on that publication. So if you're looking for a provider to help a woman with low desire, I would say look for someone who's a member of ISWISH. There are, besides testosterone, there are two central nervous system medications, FDA approved for low desire. I would recommend going to someone who's a member of ISWISH. It's isswsh.org. And there's a find a provider function on that website. And those are the people who should be the most knowledgeable about treating women with low sexual desire or other sexual problems. Could you briefly name one? You want to name it? Flabanserin, yeah. uh, the trade name is Addy, and bromelanotide uh, and the trade name is Vilesi are both FDA approved for premenopausal women with acquired hypoactive sexual desire disorder, but we use it off label in postmenopausal women and in, and in men as well. 
looking at the spectrum that we have as listeners, aging males and females may have different sexual responses. In the episode on testosterone, we reviewed that as males age, the amount of the same protein you were just referring to, sex hormone binding globulin, increases, binds more available testosterone. So guys' libido may fall off as they age. Women have more physiologic changes, especially postmenopause. So when you see older couples who come in who had been doing well earlier, what do you look at and what do you advise? We get the blood tests. We get testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, sex hormone binding globulin. We actually get dihydrotestosterone also. We get prolactin, TSH, LH, and FSH to confirm the menopause. So there's a plethora of blood tests that we would get. These are well-known to your physicians and practitioners as far as the abbreviations. They're common language for us. Yes, estradiol, progesterone, testosterone are the main sex steroid hormones. LH and FSH are gonadotropins. These are agents released by the pituitary to activate the gonad. In, in a woman, that would be the ovary. And in a menopausal woman, the ovary is not particularly functioning. It's sort of the equivalent of a prepubertal child. There's no synthesis happening in a postmenopausal ovary. Thyroid is measured through TSH, at least as a screen. There are other tests you can do. Prolactin is another agent that can cause low desire and can be elevated with disorders in the pituitary gland. There's a plethora of stuff we do in terms of hormones. We also do a test called vulvoscopy, where we would actually examine the woman's genitals and she could actually see what we're seeing simultaneously. We empower the woman to actually be aware of what their genitals look like and what disorders they have and what erythema and redness and tenderness they have and where it is in their body. We would use that as a baseline. We would photograph the various areas. And then as that woman would get treatment, presumably testosterone, estrogen, progesterone sort of strategy, as well as some cream that is hormonal that is applied to the opening of the vagina called the vestibule, as well as some medicine applied inside the vagina. So we actually do five treatments for women with menopause. Again, we do have a total episode on testosterone, so I'm not going to spend a lot more time because we have so many other things to cover. Let's talk about orgasmic response that's abnormal. We're talking about heterosexual sex right now, and then we'll move on to guys' sexual response in a little bit. But females who say it's a younger couple and the guy doesn't have a tremendous amount of experience and finds his partner isn't responding, she is not orgasmic. What's going on? We have three evidence-based therapeutic strategies for orgasmic dysfunction. Sex therapy, implying that there's a large number of women with orgasmic dysfunction, which is behavioral, which is associated with past sexual abuse and trauma, inability to relax, you know, that type of sort of genesis of the orgasmic dysfunction. We did mention uh, hormonal strategies, testosterone. Women who are on birth control pills will have reduced orgasmic intensity, in, in particular from the testosterone. So a second evidence-based strategy is to provide testosterone. And the third evidence-based strategy, it's probably the largest group, is the imbalance between the two major excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters. So the excitatory neurotransmitter of importance is dopamine, and the inhibitory neurotransmitter of importance is serotonin. And we have two agents that appropriately change these neurotransmitters in the correct direction. So the bremelanotide, trade name Violisi, is the agent that you take and an hour after you inject this, it's a, an injector pen. You actually never see the needle, like a EpiPen. 
and you apply it and bremelanotide gets released and dopamine surge happens. It's the largest FDA approved dopamine increasing agent associated then with improvement in sexual function, in particular for this case, orgasmic function. The other agent is phlebanserin, a trade name Addy. It's taken daily and nightly. You take it before you go to sleep. And phlebanserin lowers serotonin. If you sort of think of the chemicals as a balance beam, if it's too much serotonin that's inhibitory, you want to lessen the inhibition and raise the excitation. So change the chemicals appropriately. So both these medications are approved for desire, but there are robust data from the research for arousal and orgasm. So we use it off-label for those issues. There's a fourth reason for orgasmic disorder that we are newly appreciating, and that's a neurologic basis. So you have the sex therapy concept, the hormonal concept, and the brain imbalance concept. We're now finding people, more and more of them, who have reduced sensation for various reasons. They can have trauma to the dorsal nerve of their clitoris. They can have injury to the pelvic nerve of the vagina. So that's the afferent, a visceral afferent pathway. Could be pudendal nerve. That could be pudendal nerve damage from bicycle riding. And now we're even more aware of spine disease, like disc disease, like annular tears or disc protrusions that impact negatively on orgasm. And we have a bunch of patients who have had spine surgery for their orgasmic dysfunction who are now fully orgasmic. But on the flip side, some of the same injuries can cause people to have the opposite with orgasm. They have what we call persistent genital arousal disorder, genital pelvic dysesthesia. And it's a situation, this happens in men as well as women, where they are chronically feel the sensation of being aroused and having needing to have orgasm to relieve it. So that's one of those more unusual diseases that is actually not so unusual, but it is an issue because they're constantly having orgasm. And imagine being a man and orgasm, he's walking down the street and suddenly he's wet. It's pretty clear to everybody what's going on. And it's not that he had desire. It's not that he was turned on by anyone. It's a very devastating disease state that we're finding out more and more about recently. What happens when somebody is on antidepressants, specific serotonin reuptake inhibitors? Yeah, so a serotonin reuptake inhibitor is a very common cause of poor orgasm and low libido because by essence, the SSRI results in increasing serotonin because low serotonin, which is associated with good orgasm, low serotonin is also associated with depression. So by raising the serotonin, you treat the depression, but now you're struggling with the possibility of medication-induced orgasmic dysfunction. You both have developed very strong opinions regarding two issues. One, birth control pills, particularly in younger women. And two, hair loss prevention medications, again, particularly in younger men. Let's address each of those. Let's start with birth control pills and their effect on sex hormone binding globulin younger women? Actually, let me tell you the true scenario, okay? This 18-year-old kid at age 15 was put on birth control pills because she thought that's what she needed. Birth control pills lower her testosterone, making her have depression. The people treating this are unaware of the reality that it's a low testosterone-induced depression. They then put her on an antidepressant. There's millions and millions of women twice poisoned. I'm going to use poisons with quotes here, by providers who are putting them on birth control pills and antidepressants, who then have growing up really lousy sexual function, including 
orgasmic dysfunction. And don't know any better because all of their friends are in the same situation and they're now starting to experience discomfort, eventually pain when they have sexual activity, when they have intercourse. And all of their friends are experiencing the same thing because they've all been on birth control pills for so long that they think having pain during sex is normal. And ladies and gentlemen, having pain during sex is not acceptable. Let me interrupt you for a second. It makes me crazy that we talked about birth control pills for women as being an agent that's associated with poor sex. And there's not enough discussion of agents that men take that screw up their sex life and they're not informed about it. Let me get on my bandwagon because there are men who are sort of not happy with their hair. The former president was on this agent too, or is on this agent. It's called Propecia and it's a, the drug called is Finasteride. There's other agents, Dutasteride and even Minoxidil has this agent. It's called 5-alpha-reductase inhibition. And 5-alpha-reductase inhibition is a kind of a, an enzyme blocker that stops the body from synthesizing a very critical sex steroid hormone, sort of the more important version of testosterone, a lot of testosterone discussion, but actually testosterone converts to this product called dihydrotestosterone before it acts on the androgen receptor. And there are agents that men take prescribed by dermatologists and your colleagues, your urology colleagues, called finasteride or dutasteride, whose specific job in life is to stop dihydrotestosterone synthesis. And we see uh, enormous sexual dysfunction from this population. And these are 18-year-old kids, 19-year-old kids. They don't even have hair loss. Their father has hair loss or their uncle has hair loss. They don't want to go through that. Uh, so they prophylactically take these agents. And these agents cause them to have low interest, poor orgasm, poor arousal, an anhedonic sort of life, less penile sensation. They have a sort of a brain fog, a mental state. They have a sort of anxiety and panic and all those kinds of disorders. It's an enormous problem. And if you're dealing with men's health and all that, you really ought to have this conversation. This is not a small number of people. There are millions of people. They have websites now called Keeps and Rowan, and you just sit in your chair, and these agents are prescribed to you in a brown bag. You don't have to see a doctor. The side effect profile is not discussed, and it's a huge problem, especially in our practice. We see enormous numbers of these people. And we see them because when you go off these medications, the majority of the people, every function returns to normal, but not in a small group of people significant enough, they find their way to our office. They took the drug for two weeks, noticed that their erectile function disappeared, was, got poor, that they were having trouble ejaculating, whatever their symptom is, and they've stopped after two weeks, so they've stopped after a month. And now it's six months later, two years later, and their normal function has never returned. And they've stopped functioning in society because their sexual function but also the brain fog that they're experiencing. For some of them, they lose their jobs. They've lost some of their cognitive function. This destroys them. And by the time they come to us, they're often suicidal. And it's a shame because they're 18, 20, 22, 25. You know, and as, as Erwin said, they took the drug because their father has male pattern baldness and they were afraid they're going to have that too. And no one ever discussed side effects. And now they have these long-term issues. That's the crime. If we explain to patients, these are the side effects, whether it's birth control pills or finasteride, if we explain to patients these things could happen and then the patient makes a rational decision, that's appropriate medicine. It's when we just say, everything's fine, nothing's gonna happen, and then things happen, then we're not doing patient-centered medicine. It's always good to have full disclosure. 
when I look at our listening audience, uh, again, we may have some young males. And why don't you just review a little bit uh, about the fact that orgasmic intervals change as we age? What happens to the younger male to the older male as far as that goes? Well, there's a latency time, the refractory period, that is relatively short. That means you can have an erection and orgasm then recover the erection and have a second event relatively quickly as a young man. And the refractory period increases as we get older. For some people, another big problem in male sexual dysfunction, actually it's the most common problem in male sexual dysfunction is premature ejaculation. The refractory period is actually utilized to improve the ability to control their ejaculation. I mean, some people, their first intercourse it's a 15-second delay from entry to ejaculation. Well, their second intercourse, they can get several minutes out of the thing. So refractory period is a physiologic event. Yeah, but also this ejaculation time. So as you said, young men with premature ejaculation ejaculate so quickly that there's no chance to really have any kind of a satisfying intercourse event. Now you get the aging male and his ejaculation time may extend so long, he just can't ejaculate. It's 15 minutes now and his partner is also an aging partner and her body feels like it's getting battered or a male partner. You know, it's like you want to say, oh, hey, ejaculate already. It's enough time. So with aging, all of these things, you know, change in men and in women, our bodies change over time. And we have to have realistic expectations that the way we performed when we were 20, is not necessarily how we perform when we're 65. What do you tend to initially advise a male who has premature ejaculation? There are pharmacologic strategies and sex therapy strategies to help men with premature ejaculation. There are agents that numb the penis, so the sensation is less. There are agents that act on the dopamine serotonin balance. You would want to, like an opioid, like a drug called tramadol is a fabulous agent that we use. Then there's SSRIs that raise serotonin to inhibit the orgasmic response. So we have pharmacologic strategies and sex therapy strategies. And does pelvic relaxation have a role in improving the threshold? So pelvic floor physical therapy is like the most (laughs) widely underused. We have data to support that pelvic floor physical therapy can help men with premature ejaculation. And in our world, we have the biopsychosocial world. We have pelvic floor physical therapy in our office. So we have the sex therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy, and biology in our office. So we utilize and engage the trio of therapies for all sexual disorders, but specifically PT for PE is a realistic strategy. Physical therapy to teach patients how to relax the pelvis. If you relax the pelvis, it can improve premature ejaculation, improve the threshold. Correct. Okay. And just to explore, because we're getting close to closing time, let's just talk about our aging population and sex. What do you tell aging couples as far as accommodating each other? I know some positions are less strenuous. How do you go about counseling our population that wants to still be active, but perhaps physically things are getting more difficult? I think you said the key word that wants to still be active. I mean, everybody has a right to enjoy satisfying sexual activity, no matter how old they are, but it's their decision that they want it. But we always remind people that if you're in a relationship and one member of that partnership is getting treated, that there's a good chance that their partner also needs treatment. 
we encourage patients to come in with their partners to learn about things. But when you think about it, you know, a woman is aging and if she's not on any kind of hormonal agents for menopause, she's going to be, have discomfort. If her partner is aging and he doesn't have a strong an erection, it may sound strange, but a really firm erection goes in to a woman's introitus with much less pain than a not quite firm erection. So, you know, we need to think about treating both partners so that they can both enjoy themselves. The reality that as men age, the chances for erectile dysfunction increase. So if you're 50, 50% 50 of men have erectile dysfunction. When you get to 70, 70% of men have erectile dysfunction. You get to 80, 80% of men have erectile dysfunction. So it's not a very difficult concept. It's just the age and just add a percentage and you'll get the realistic chances of having ED. So it's really common. And as Sue said, a firm erection is the key to pleasure and less pain for a woman. On the flip side, males have testicles that continue to function, although maybe less efficiently during aging. But when a woman turns on average 51, their ovary stops the synthesis of sex steroid hormones. They have an on-off switch. And therefore, there's a condition called GSM. G stands for genitourinary. So it would be genitals and urinary symptoms. So atrophy, urgency, frequency of urination, dryness, pain during penetration, genital urinary syndrome of menopause, GSM. It's an inevitable consequence of a woman making a decision, I want to go through menopause naturally. I don't want treatment. I think that's too much risk. So if a woman with GSM makes that decision, it's really complicated for a guy to then you know, consider the sort of penetrative sexual activity sort of context. And gray divorce, men seeking younger women is a consequence. So listen, aging men and women deserve whatever they wish to have, and they need counseling and doctors who are ready to have good conversations with them, discuss with them the risks and benefits. The excess thought that taking estrogen is going to cause breast cancer is just wrong. It's just such a wrong a scientific fact that sort of mitigates women to want to have no treatment in their aging years. But anyways, both men and women need to be counseled with an appropriate ISWISH and I guess SMSNA, let's call it the equivalent on the male side, Sexual Medicine Society of North America, providers who are cognizant of these various issues. So the bottom line is you don't ever have to stop having sex if it's something you want to do. You may just need a little help from your local doc. Great message. And as we get to wrapping up, I always like to ask about resources. Erwin, you just mentioned the Sexual Medicine Society of North America. They have a great public portal, Sex Health Matters. There's a lot of good information there. Anybody who's listening can Google Sexual Medicine Society North America and then find Sex Health Matters. The link is on the homepage for the Sexual Medicine Society, the International Society for the Study of uh, Women's Sexual Health, again, most likely has some information for the public. We're developing a new website. It's not in place yet, which will have a whole section for the public. Currently, that's not yet available. We do have a find a provider portal, but the Sexual Medicine Society of North America has been working with ISWISH to get more content for women's sexual health on their portal that you just mentioned. So there is slowly being developed more and more information for women 
it's out there. Just make sure if you're Googling, looking for resources, you find a credible source, because just like for men, there are a lot of people out there trying to get your business who are not necessarily knowledgeable. If somebody has the letter IF after their name, that means they're a fellow of ISWISH. That means that they've developed a certain amount of expertise, and that should give you a comfort level from there. And not to dismiss the opportunity to talk about San Diego sexual medicine, where Sue and I work. There's a fabulous website. And... Sue, when I uh, introduced you, you're a ASEC certified sexuality educator. AASECT is an actual group of therapists. That's the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And if somebody is looking for therapy, somebody who has that certification is probably more involved than somebody who's treating a different disorder. I mean, therapists treat all kinds of issues. So somebody who's an ASEC certified educator will have more expertise in this area. Yes. And an ASEC certified therapist. And ASEC also has a find a provider option on their website. And while we're talking about other therapists, if you're looking for a physical therapist, you want someone who has an expertise in pelvic floor physical therapy. And so you can find that on the APTA, American Physical Therapy Association. So if you're going to a society that is, you know, is a vetted organization, you can be pretty sure that the people that you're finding through these organizations are quality people. And one last resource, there's a pinnacle of sexual medicine is the International Society called International Society of Sexual Medicine, ISSF. Yeah, I believe they've just recently developed a find a provider portal there. And because it's international, your listeners may not all be in the United States. And so this will give them access to people around the world. Many of us are members of all these societies that you've mentioned. They're all great resources. Well, I want to wrap up. I just want to thank you both for taking the time to help us with this episode. Oh, good. Thank you, Rich, very much. Thank you. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, PhD. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.